I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. This morning we will mainly be looking at verse 13 and then return and look at the 14 to 18 next week. But I want to read to you verses 13 to 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we look into your inspired word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning in our series through James, we come to the third uh, theme that James covers in his book. We've discussed the themes before as early as chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. We're given the three themes there. He's answering the question, what is acceptable religion before God our Father? Remember, his answer was a bridal tongue, care for the needy, and keeping oneself unstained from the world. And then he proceeded to talk about those three things, and he began with care for the needy. As we just saw recently, he spoke about the use of the tongue. And now, picking up in verse 13, he turns to the third theme, and that's a life uh, unstained from the world. And so that's what we're going to look at, begin looking at this morning, and to launch into that theme, what he does, James does, is begin with a discussion of wisdom. He, he, and when you think about it and everything that's going on, it makes perfect sense. Why? Well, worldliness, impurity, always begins with a lack of wisdom. Unholiness will always manifest in those who reject God and His Word. Scripture says this, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so a life of keeping ourselves unstained from the world cannot be realized if we lack wisdom. And so that's why James is going to begin here. Now, biblical writers and philosophers, ancient philosophers, placed a, a, a real premium on gaining wisdom. You may recall the most famous of those who were wise is Solomon. And the story is found in 1 Kings. God approaches Solomon, appears to him in a dream, and, and offers him a blank check. Uh, whatever you want, you can have. Imagine being asked that uh, by God. What would you say? What would your answer be? Anything you want. Well, Solomon does answer, and he says, I want wisdom to govern your people. I want understanding. And the Lord was pleased with that answer and said, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, which most of us probably thought of, and have not asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. 
I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. That's 1 Kings chapter 3. And Solomon became the wisest person to ever live. And despite his foolishness later in life, he was world-renowned for his wisdom. In fact, he was so renowned, a queen traveled uh, 1,200 miles to, to meet him. We read about that in 1 Kings 10. The Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's wisdom. And so she takes this uh, trip across the land in order to ask him some challenging and hard questions. And Solomon answers, answers them all. When the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, there was no more breath in her, we're told. She was completely breathless at, at Solomon's wisdom that was displayed. Verse 6 says, And he said to the king, The report was, she said to the king, that is, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. That's 1 Kings 10, 6 and 7. Now, why walk through that little story? Well, first, I want you to see the, the virtue of heavenly wisdom and its importance. It was so important that the Queen of Sheba would travel 1,200 miles on camelback to meet this man. And, and how much are you willing to sacrifice to gain wisdom? She was willing to sacrifice 1,200-mile travel. Who among you, James asks, is wise and understanding? See, she, she was willing to ask, I mean travel that is, and to ask him her questions. And we're told that if we just go before God and ask for wisdom, we will receive it. It seems to me that given the state of the church in America, it's not a prayer that's often asked, unfortunately. See, she had Solomon to travel to. We have Jesus, who Scripture tells us and we know is greater than Solomon, available to us, and we ignore him at our peril. That's why Jesus says, referring to this story, the queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here, speaking of himself. So the question, what are you willing to give up to gain wisdom in understanding. Uh, the possession of it is priceless. It's what Proverbs speaks of, the wisdom book of the Old Testament. James is the wisdom book of the New. But in the Old Testament, Proverbs says, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom. And, and, and then uh, the writer personifies wisdom. She will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding. Esteem her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. And so that's the first reason that we looked at this story, to see the value. Now, second... We, we reveal what happens. We, we find out the meaning based on what happens here. 
We notice what, what happens in the story with the Queen of Sheba. She, we're told, saw the wisdom of Solomon. She wasn't just in awe at his wit that he could ask really difficult questions. She didn't just hear his wisdom. We're told she saw the reality of it around her. Everywhere she looked in his kingdom bore witness to the wisdom of the king. See, beloved, wisdom is something that must be displayed. It's displayed in in how you conduct your business and how you conduct your life. It's displayed in the friends you keep and in the work that you do. It's displayed in how you use your time, how you use your talents, how you use your treasures. See, wisdom is to be seen just as much as it's to be heard. And so it should come as no surprise that wisdom plays such a a central and crucial role in James' letter. His one great concern in this letter is to help us to identify if we're truly living out holy lives. He's confronting us. And to do that, you need wisdom. And so James is probing, as he always does, He's pushing as a preacher. He wants you to ask yourself, who among you is wise and understanding? Now, there are two terms, wise and understanding. And they're pretty much synonymous, but they do have some differences. The word for wise is where we get the name Sophia, who happens to be up there, my daughter. She's named Sophia. We named her wisdom. It's a common Greek word. It's for speculative knowledge and philosophy. That's what the word stood for. However, the Hebrews, they infused it with a much richer meaning. It was applying to the matter of practical living. It's taken the wisdom that you have and been able to live it out. Uh, or more specifically, they applied it to righteous living. And so that's what James means by wise, knowledge correctly applied. Now, by understanding, it's used only here in the New Testament, and it has to do with a specialist, or it has to do with a professional who could skillfully or artfully apply his expertise in any given situation, in in practical places. And so let's put the two terms together. This is what James is asking you. Who among you is a professional in living wisely? Who among you is a professional in living righteously? Who among you is skilled at the art of living a pure life? And so do you see the biblical definition of wisdom and and, and understanding is not the same as just having knowledge. There are some very, very smart people who are fools. You, You can have a degree and not be very wise. Uh, Truly possessing wisdom and understanding is having this artistic, professional skill to live out a righteous life. And so, again, James asks, he's asking, who among you is wise here? Who, Who among you is understanding? And James doesn't leave us in the dark. He, he, he doesn't leave us in the dark to figure out how we truly possess this wisdom and understanding. 
He's saying it's important. He's spending a lot of emphasis on it. He's putting a lot of emphasis on it. And he says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you have wisdom, if you have understanding, if you possess the professional skill of living righteous, you will show it how by your good life over a span of years. I understand at this point, James isn't telling us something we must do. He rather, he's describing for us the, the type of person, the type of people we ought to be if we're going to be wise. He's saying, search your heart. He's asking you to consider your claim to be wise. And he doesn't do it in theological terms. He doesn't say, let's see how much doctrine you know. He, he, says, he says it in practical terms. Of course, the one flows from the other. The more you know about God, the more doctrine you know, the, the better chances are you're going to live a biblically practical life that's wise. But wisdom is to be shown. Let him show, he says. Uh, how? How do you do it? How do you show it? By your good conduct, one, and by works done in the meekness of wisdom. And so let's look at those two. By your good conduct. The, the meaning is a way of life, a lifestyle. You know, throughout the Bible, we're called upon to follow the example of others, to follow their way of life. Approximately 30 times we're told to do it. Pa Paul is an example. Obviously, we're to follow Jesus. We're to follow their way of life. As one perceptive preacher points out, the Scripture is calling us not so much as a command but it is an invitation. It's giving us this invitation to an excellent life. It's given us an invitation to this, this beautiful life. We're to look at these worthy leaders, again, particularly Christ, and, and follow their example, follow his example in particular. And by doing that, our life becomes beautiful. We, we model our lives after his. It flows out of us without even knowing it at times. That's what Jesus' point was in Matthew 25. He confronts people and he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And how do they respond? They respond with, when? When did we do that, Lord? And then he tells them, every time you fed someone in my name, you did it unto me. It became such a routine lifestyle choice that they didn't even remember doing these good deeds. It came out of this renewed heart that Jesus gave them, and, and they were living this way. It wasn't because there were rules, go feed the homeless. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have rules, and it doesn't mean we don't need rules to nudge us at times. They are, the law is given for a purpose, but... It's this lifestyle after a long life, a tongue that speaks words of comfort rather than words of hate. You see the change in a believer, and that's what happens. People that would never forgive in their past, and they're just forgiving people that are unforgivable at times. Over and over, you have um, to love people that, be, that are unlovely. There's enough of those around, and, and, and we love them. Well, why? 
Well, we're commanded. Yeah, we're commanded, but we're, we're starting to model our lives after Jesus. Our acts of obedience to God performed consistently day after day without even noticing at times produce a beautiful life that is pleasing to him. That's the fruit of heavenly wisdom. Wisdom is beautiful. I I have no doubt that that's what caught the eye of the Queen of Sheba. She saw the beauty of Solomon's conduct and, and, and knew that his wisdom wasn't normal wisdom. It was heavenly wisdom. And so wisdom is beautiful. Second, James says true wisdom and understanding shows itself in works done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, that word meek carries the idea of tenderness or graciousness. You know, in the English, we, we think of it as someone who's shy and weak. Oh, they're meek. A, a gentle man, though, biblically speaking, is bold and tough. The word is actually used of a wild horse that becomes broken and, and made useful. It, it, its kind of power is now directed. That's, that's what it means. And so the idea is power under control. You know who's called meek in the Bible? Moses. You know who's called meek in the Bible? Jesus. And yet no one's accusing them of being weak or a coward. And so a meek person is someone who shows humility, and, and, and because they are aware of the greatness of God, at the same time recognize they are finite and sinners. A finite sinners, that is. And a meek person's gentle in dealing with others because they know God's in control, that God is sovereign. And so a meek person can confidently meet their trials and their enemies with a, a gentle assurance that God will someday vindicate them. They don't have to prove themselves in that way. They are meek. Uh, they're prepared to forgo their rights in this world if that's what God requires a meek person is. Why? Because they know they'll be blessed. Because Jesus promised them that. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, Matthew 5 says. A, a meek person will be made infinitely rich in the future. And we're not talking about earthly blessings here, but heavenly blessings. And so... Who is skillful at the art of living a righteous life? Uh, uh, Let him show it by his consistently beautiful lifestyle and his meekness toward others. You know, when you think of beautiful people, we usually think of outside, outward appearance, of course. We think of the cover of magazines, fashion magazines. They're the beautiful people. But, you know, the saying is beauty is only skin deep. It's actually not. It goes much deeper than that. True beauty, that is. It, 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 it's, it's at the very core of our being. See, we're to be beautiful people from within. We're we're to be people whose conduct is good, lives lived according to Scripture. People who possess the virtue of a strong and bold meekness and humility. Or if I was just to put it simply, it'd be people to resemble Jesus. And and so again, what James is doing, the half-brother of our Lord, is driving us back to Christ like he has week in and week out as we looked at the text. If you want to be beautiful like Jesus, he's saying, look, you need to obtain heavenly wisdom. How? How do you obtain it? Well, Scripture 
lays out four avenues, as it were, that wisdom and how wisdom is obtained. One commentator states there are four means God has provided for us to get wisdom and understanding. The first is union with Christ. The second is the fear of the Lord. The third is Scripture itself. And the fourth is prayer. Seems simple. Let's look at them quickly. First, you begin with union with Christ. Throughout the New Testament, we're taught that believers, those who have trusted Christ, those who have acknowledged that they are sinners in need of salvation, they have come to Christ for salvation, they believe that he died, they believe that he rose again, they trust in him alone for their salvation, that those people who by grace through faith alone have become believers, they're united to Jesus. They are united to them. They're in Christ, the scripture says. Paul uses that term in Christ 161 times. If you're a believer here, that's the relationship you have with Jesus. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And in respect to wisdom, Paul tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. And so he goes on in verse 30 and he says this uh, of, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Since all wisdom resides in Jesus, if we're going to have wisdom, we need to be connected to him. We need to be united to him. Why? Because wisdom is rooted in him. You're personally experienced the infinite wisdom of God when you're connected to Christ. See, being connected to Christ opens up the floodgates of wisdom. Of course, we stop up the floodgates often, and we don't let them flow. But that's where we have to begin. It's the first means by which you get wisdom and understanding. It's found in Christ. All the wisdom of the world is in Christ. And so, if you are outside of Christ, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't trust Him, you may be very smart. There are a lot of brilliant atheists and a lot of foolish believers. But if you're outside of Christ, you can't know heavenly wisdom. You can hear about it from afar, but you can't know heavenly wisdom until you're united to Him. And so that's where you must begin. That's where divine wisdom is found. That's first. Second is the fear of the Lord. We know what this means. We studied Ecclesiastes. We've talked about it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That word fear begins with the meaning of terror. And then it goes on to an idea of dread, which then goes on to an idea of reverence and awe. And so you begin with terror. Why? Because God is holy and majestic and the creator, and you were but dust. And then and you you've 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 violated his holy will, and then there's this dread and trembling. And then he opens up your eyes and he unites you to Christ, and then there's this astonishment, and that results in all reverence, trust, worship, and obedience. That's the fear of the Lord. See, if you fear the Lord, 
If you fear him, out of your heart will spring this desire to please God. It's a holy fear. He's sitting upon a throne. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And so it's a holy fear that you might not sin against him. That's why the fear of the Lord is the foundation of biblical wisdom. Because we just said, biblical wisdom says we're going to live a life of righteousness. And, and, and so the fear of the Lord drives us to live for Christ a life of righteousness. One writer, Ken Hughes, pastor, said, When we see God for who he is, holy, awesome, loving, and sovereign, and embrace a proper fear of him, we are at the doorway of wisdom and all we must do is step through by faith. And so terror, reverence, and awe for God is a means to biblical wisdom. And so united to Christ, uh, a fear of the Lord. Third, we must look to Scripture. This one, again, obvious. Psalm 119 says, How I love your law, I meditated on, on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. If you want to be wise, you must meditate on the Word of God all day long. You must be able to say with Paul that the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. Only a fool neglects the Word of God. And and, and so Scripture is a means by which we grow in biblical wisdom and understanding. And then the final one's prayer. We just look back at the beginning of James. He says in James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Whoever asks God, believing in God, understanding and trusting in God, will get wisdom. There's no exceptions here. God will get wisdom. There's no exceptions here. Scripture and prayer That's the means of obtaining wisdom that we need. And I want you to notice something about these four things. All four of the means of obtaining wisdom have one thing in common. They all pertain to God. God saves us and unites us to Christ by His Spirit. God is the one who's to be feared. God spoke to us in the Scripture. And finally, it is the God that we pray And so it's no exaggeration at all that if you want to be wise, you must be consumed with the things of God. You must be heavenly minded while living this side of heaven. You know, one day, if you're a believer, you'll be glorified and you'll spend eternity with God. They're wonderful doctrines. They're not just doctrines, though, for the future. We talked about that when we did our conference with Pastor Mick. These are radical truths that reorient how we live today. See, wisdom in life is found by readjusting our perspective. It's allowing our citizenship in heaven to change how we live in our citizenship here on earth. That's what Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory, Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Did, did you hear that? Where, what are we supposed to keep our focus? 
throughout our days here on earth as we live out our life. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. You're hidden with Christ in God. You're in Christ. You're in the heavenlies. And that perspective now affects how you live here on earth. So now is the time you are to apply that promise of glory. If you want to be wise... You need to begin judging and viewing everything, everything from the perspective of eternity, from the perspective of the things of God. You you must measure time around the things of God. Let me close with this example. Let me give you an example of that. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it, Daniel chapter 9. I believe Daniel summarizes, well, again, I'll close here. We're told in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, that Daniel was reading the Word of God. And he's reading the Word of God from the book of Jeremiah. And as he's meditating on Jeremiah's words, the prophecy of Jeremiah about the desolation of Jerusalem, the exile of Jerusalem... He realizes that it teaches that it would last 70 years. And so, he realizes the end of their exile that he is in is coming toward an end. The 70 years are almost up. And they would be going home soon. Now, there's a great lesson here in just trusting the Word of God for what it teaches. He reads, wait a minute, I did a little math. It's not long. And so, what does he do? He turns from the Word of God And he turns to prayer. And he says this, picking up in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in a swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. And so here he is in exile. And he reads the scripture, and he comes to an understanding, and he prays. And it's around the time Gabriel comes to him, which is in a, in, a, in a great vision, and it's around the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, let me stop there. He says, about the time of the evening sacrifice, the evening offering. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but think about it. It has been almost 70 years since he had an evening offering. He's in captivity. And yet here is Daniel still measuring his day around the sacred activity of when the people of God are gathered. He was living in exile in light of the things of God. That is wisdom. That is wisdom. And this fits the context of James perfectly. We are told in chapter 1 of James that that we need wisdom to face trials. Was Daniel in a trial? He was in exile. They were in exile. Daniel faced the lion's den. And his, his friends were thrown into the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If anything, when you think about that, they should have seemed distant. God should have seemed distant. All this time... And and, and a kind of a fading memory, but not for Daniel. He was a believer, which makes him wise. 
He was giving reverence to God, which makes him wise. He was in the scripture studying the word, which makes him wise. He was praying, which makes him wise. He was measuring time around the things of God. He was measuring time around the heavenly activity of corporate worship. And that makes you wise. And so let me ask. What does the time you spend in the Word say about how wise you are? Uh, What does the time you spend in prayer say about how wise you are? What does the time you spend in worship say about how wise you are? And, And what is your attendance at worship, at prayer? When the people of God are gathered for worship to hear God speak, what does your attendance record As you go over the years, say about how wise you truly are. What does it say to you about how you measure time here on earth? See, if you want to be skillful at the art of righteous living, you need to be a believer. That's true. You can't be united to Christ without being a believer. You need to fear the Lord, reverence and all. That's true. You need to read the Scripture. I always got my my mentor... Phil Reichen always used to say, Drew, if you're not careful, every one of your applications is going to be read Scripture and pray. Read Scripture and pray. Well, you need to read the Scripture. (laughs) And you need to pray. That's all true. But you must also allow your future hope, the promise that is given to you by Christ and the Word, that, that He will return for you, that you will be glorified, that you are united to Him in the heavenlies. All those truths to invade your present life so you can see them from a heavenly perspective around the things of God. Remember this, you're first a citizen of heaven. And so live like it and be wise. Let's pray. Well, Father, the sermon is easy to preach. Living it is difficult. I can confess in my own life, and I'm sure my brothers and sisters here can do the same, that we often live foolishly, consumed with the things of this world, not viewing life from the perspective that we should have in Christ. We pray, Father, that you would indeed give us wisdom from above. In Christ's name, amen.
may our high King of heaven, even our Savior Jesus Christ, fill your heart now with wisdom that you may glorify him until the day he returns. Amen.